the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And as always, find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Well, uh, for one more day here, Ian is not in. Uh, We're going to have some guests in through the day. uh, And I'll do some solo here, but Ian will be back with us uh, tomorrow. Uh, so, or John, I don't know, producer in there, you might need to carry us some here because I'm a little tired. Ian's not here. Yeah, hey, you're still in your coat, man. I'm, it's freezing in the studio. <laughs> although, although I did just secure myself from the snack cart a uh, a uh, pop a pop tart, frozen strawberry pop tart. Debbie frosted, treats. sorry, frosted strawberry pop tart. Debbie treats as well. Uh, that is uh, something that the pop tart. Do you know when I was in high school? My senior year of high school, I had a pop tart every morning for breakfast. No kidding. Yeah, it did explained you, did how you I looked. Heated up, or did you just oh, eat oh, it always, the always toasted really? it. Yeah, and then I would take it in my car as I left, and uh, it speaks a little bit to you know the shape I was in in, co- in oh, high school. Yeah, <laughs> but man, was Speak it good! The, you're preaching to the choir, man. But man, was it good! So. No. Uh, anyway, that's what if you hear me chomping away, it's going to be on a, fro- a frosted strawberry pop tart at the moment. And uh, we are glad that you're here with us. I wanted to start with a story that I saw on CNN about former President Jimmy Carter. Former President Carter uh, has begun, I think, in his uh, post presidency. Now that it's been, you know, many, many years, he I think he stopped being president when I was three years old. Uh, but has just been very impressive as a former uh, president. And he's getting way up there in age, I believe, 95 years old. Uh, and he said something that I think is really uh, encouraging, but also challenging. And uh, let me just read it. Let me read this story uh, and we can talk about it. Uh, it says Jimmy Carter tells church service he is, quote, absolutely and completely at ease with death. Former President Jimmy Carter said Sunday that he found he was absolutely and completely at ease with death after doctors told him in 2015 that his cancer had spread to his brain. I assumed naturally that I was going to die very quickly, Carter said at the church service. I obviously prayed about it. I didn't ask God to let me live, but I asked God to give me a proper attitude toward death. And I found that I was absolutely and completely at ease. It didn't really matter to me whether I died or lived except I was going to miss my family and miss the work at the Carter Center and miss teaching your Sunday school service sometimes and so forth. All those delightful things, the 39th president added, smiling. The son of a peanut farmer who entered the U.S. Naval Academy during World War II, uh, Carter announced that he beat cancer in December of 2015 after he received experimental treatment for liver cancer that metastasized to his brain. 
During a news conference at the time, Carter said his fate was, quote, in the hands of God and vowed to continue teaching Sunday school at his church as long as I'm physically able. When Carter celebrated his 95th birthday on October 1st, he became the oldest living president, a title once held by the late George H.W. Bush, who died in late 2018. Carter still teaches Sunday school lessons at Maranatha Baptist Church in his home state of Georgia. Uh, but after an October 21, 21st fall in his home that led to minor pelvic fracture, the church said he would miss his appearance. Uh, but the church later announced the former president would teach as scheduled. And it goes on and on. He gives some of his thoughts about where we are as a country. He said uh, that the way to make the United States a superpower is that we can help uh, is that by helping the United States become more peaceful. Carter said the United States would be a better country if people reached out to somebody who might need a friend. And so, uh, A, I bring that up to say you can find this on our Facebook page or at CNN.com. Uh, I bring this up to say uh, that you know, regardless of your politics, you have to have respect for a man who has been the most powerful man in the world and is still teaching Sunday school and is still 95 years old, still going to church, uh, Habitat for Humanity. You know, there was that clip of him the other day still helping build houses at the age of 95. This is a guy uh, 95 years old who has earned the right and the ability to just put his feet up and not really do anything. But many people say, again, I wasn't really alive or uh, I was a baby when he was president. Many people say uh, he has been uh, where he may have lacked in some people's minds as a president. As a former president, he is kind of the blueprint as to how to keep making a difference as you go. But the other thing I wanted to focus on is this quote where he says, I am absolutely and completely at ease with death. I want you to think about that statement for a second. What would it take for you to be able to make that statement? I am absolutely or maybe you feel like you can make that statement. I'm absolutely and completely at ease with death that when he had his cancer scare, uh, that he came to that through prayer. And part of this might be being in your 90s. Uh, but I also think there has to be a perspective there where uh, your faith in Christ uh, really um, uh, leads you to that place. And why do I say that? Well, Paul, in the book of Philippians, he is chained to a, a Roman prison, chained to a wall, uh, fully expecting to be martyred for his faith. And he writes the letter to the church of Philippi that we know as Philippians. And over and over, the the main thread of the book of Philippians, while Paul is facing execution, is the concept of joy. And that's always confused people. How can Paul speak to joy when he's facing brutal death, when he's facing illegitimate imprisonment, when he's facing his loss of freedom, whatever else it might be? But it is in that context and in that letter that Paul writes a verse that many of us know. In fact, I don't know many. I know many people who have it tattooed to their arm or or wherever else. He says a verse that uh, is easily quotable, but hard to live out. Uh, the Apostle Paul, while chained to a Roman prison facing death, says uh, in Philippians chapter one, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me say it again. Paul says for me to live is Christ and to die is is gain. That's essentially what Jimmy Carter said here. I am at ease with death. Why could Jimmy Carter say I'm absolutely and completely at ease with death? One aspect of it is he probably feels good about the life that he's lived. Looking back, of course, he doesn't say, oh, it'll all be fine. He says, I'll miss my family. I'll miss my church. I'll miss these other things. But I think Jimmy Carter there is is kind of hinting at what Paul says explicitly. 
uh, that death ushers in a new relation, like a, a fullness of relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul says in Philippians 1. If I live, then I get to keep working for the gospel and keep making an effort for the gospel. But if I die, I'm in the presence of Jesus. And so Paul, without saying it, says it's a bit of a win-win for me. And that's what I read when Jimmy Carter says this, absolutely and completely at ease with death. And I would ask you, as we start our show today, what is your perspective on that? Uh, If, uh, you know, whether you get to old age or not, and you're kind of facing your own mortality, what role does your faith in Jesus Christ play to inform how you would walk that journey? Does it make it easier? Does it put you at ease? Does it say, hey, I I might rather live with my family and be alive, but if I were to die, I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus. So therefore, it's a bit of a win-win. I wanted to start with this story because I thought it was remarkable and at the same time challenging. What can we learn about um, uh, our own mortality and how we face that journey Uh, Not only from the words of Jimmy Carter here, but more so from the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter one. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, we'd love to hear your uh, responses to this. You can do so on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, Christianity Today uh, wrote a follow up to the James McDonald and Harvest kind of mess that's been going on. We're going to talk about that next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today on this Wednesday afternoon. Normally joined by Ian Simpkins. We miss Ian being here. He is not in today, but he will be back tomorrow. And uh, so we will get back to our normal rhythm of having the two of us here uh, beginning again uh, tomorrow. But for now, I'm going to ride solo a little bit. In the second hour, we're going to have KJ Johnson join us. KJ has been on the show before. Uh, And we are looking forward to having KJ back with us. He's the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute here in Chicago uh, and always a good one to talk to. Before we jump into this next article, I'm excited to tell you about a new advertiser on The Common Good. Uh, It's MyPillow and their amazing founder, Mike Lindell's story about his journey from drug addiction to follower of Jesus. Common Good listeners can get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the brand new MyPillow towels, by going to MyPillow.com and clicking on the radio listener specials box. You know, my wife and I just got some MyPillows, uh, towels and pillows, loving them, loving them. I can't uh, give you enough, uh, urge you enough to go get some of these because you can enjoy savings on MyPillow, on MyPillows, on mattress toppers, on Giza sheets, towels, pet beds. And much more. All products come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. So go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener specials box, and get deep discounts on all products. Again, including MyPillows for only $29.99 and 30% off mattress toppers, Giza cotton sheets, and more. That's MyPillow.com. Click the radio specials box and enter promo code WYLL or call 1-800-489-0201. That's one 800 489 Zero two zero one. That's mypillow.com. Use the promo code WYLL. Well, over ever since we started the show, in fact, in a weird way, it coincided with when we kicked off the show. You know, John, I'll never forget the very first show we did, the very first segment we did had to do with James McDonald and Harvest. That was surprised. the week it started. Yeah. Uh, and so 
you, you probably know the story, especially if you live in the Chicagoland area. James McDonald started Harvest Bible Chapel, also Walk in the Word Ministries. Uh, and, and it was a, a, an expansive ministry up until a little less than a year ago when it kind of all came crashing down uh, for James McDonald. Uh, there were blogs and reports that just kind of put out a lot of bad stuff out there about him uh, in terms of anger, in terms of attitude, in terms of the way he treated people. Uh, there were some questionable money practices. And all of this has led to James McDonald was then uh, basically let go from Harvest Bible Chapel. And you haven't really heard much about this story until uh, Kate Shelnut from Christianity Today just wrote an article this week uh, about the next step in this. And that is, what did the elders of Harvest Bible Chapel do this week? And so I want to read some of this story to you. It's at Christianity Today uh, and then give you some of my thoughts. The elders of Harvest Bible Chapel have concluded that their former pastor, James McDonald, is biblically disqualified from ministry and can never return to leadership at their congregation. A church investigation into charges against McDonald, who was fired in February, found he failed to meet elder qualifications laid out in Scripture. They attested he instead had a pattern of being disruptive, insulting, belittling, and verbally abusive, improperly exercising positional and spiritual authority, and extravagant spending utilizing church resources resulting in personal benefit, according to a statement released on Sunday. The amount the announcement said that while the Bible doesn't teach that disqualification from ministry is permanent, his damage to harvest would prevent him from serving again as an elder or a pastor there. McDonald was dismissed from the church. He found that after a string of controversies over his leadership and harvest finances, concluding with an October 2018 defamation defamation suit against his critics, an expose by Julie Royce and a leaked recording of inappropriate Remarks. He did not respond to an email from CT requesting comment. Uh, he has mostly stayed off social media and have the public eye since being fired, but did appear at two recent events held by New Life Covenant Church, the Assemblies of God Mega Church in Chicago. Uh, CT contacted New Life Covenant and its senior pastor, Choco de Jesus, on Monday to confirm McDonald's involvement, but neither have responded. And then the, the uh, CT article uh, goes on to talk about not just McDonald. Uh, but some other people like Darren Patrick earlier this year, it says Pastor Darren Patrick spoke out about returning to ministry three years after being fired for sinful issues at his journey church uh, in St. Louis. But as we've talked about, he's done it kind of the right way. And now he's under Greg Surratt at Seacoast Church. Then you've got Tulian Chavigian. Uh, he returned to the pastorate recently, launching a new church in September, four years after an affair, lost him his job at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida. Uh, and uh, Mark Driscoll resigned from Mars Hill in 2014, despite the elders in Driscoll himself agreeing that concerns over his temper and arrogance do, do not disqualify him from ministry. He launched a new church in Arizona in 2016. And so the list keeps growing here uh, of, of pastors and their indiscretions, whether it be sinful or abusive or anger, whatever else it might be. And I thought this was an important update to bring because we've been talking about this harvest story uh, through the last year. And, and I do want to applaud uh, their their elders for kind of doing the work, even though I think that bridge was already busted. I don't think they were probably going to bring James McDonald back, and I don't think McDonald was going to go back there. They still did the work and still presented it, saying, here's why we think he is biblically disqualified. Uh, 
what I'm worried about is that there's going to be another church out there or he's going to start his own church that says, well, we don't really care about that because he's got a great platform. He's a great speaker. He can X, Y or Z. That's what Mark Driscoll did. Mark Driscoll, a lot of the same stuff in 2014 where things came crashing down around him, not because of explicit sinful behavior, you know, sexual or financial or whatever, but instead because of leadership, anger, bullying, this kind of stuff. Uh, and he just went and started his own church two years later. And, you know, a couple thousand people probably go to that church now. And Ian and I have talked about this a couple times now. Uh, but what is it in the evangelical world that seems to be so quick to say, eh, we're not going to worry about that because these guys or these girls are dynamic. We want to hear them more. We want to we miss their sermons. And so we are going to look past these character flaws when, in fact, the pastors of these of our churches, the men and women that we look up to, the ones who are uh, called to shepherd the flock should be first and foremost marked by their integrity and by the consistency of their character, not by the uh, the dynamic nature of their preaching, uh, not by their ability to to make a large uh, to gather a large number of people. Yet over and over and over again, it seems like, especially in the evangelical world, we keep seeing these high profile pastors who take a fall that's also highly public quickly, just kind of they go away a little bit and then they just kind of reappear uh, without kind of the uh, the public vetting or the vetting of uh, are they worthy to be restored? Again, this is not about grace and forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness are offered to all. It does not mean that the platform has to be restored. It does not mean that leadership has to be restored. It does not mean that authority has to be restored. I am all for uh, the forgiveness and grace to be shown to the James McDonald's of the world where it stops for me is putting them back up on a stage and saying, lead us because you're man, you're a great speaker, just so dangerous. And so you can find that at Christianity Today. It's a really helpful article, kind of this idea about uh, qualifications and the work of the elders. Uh, but we would love to hear your feedback. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You can do so at the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook. That is the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk to uh, Dave Donaldson. Dave is one of the authors of City Serve, your guide to church-based compassion. We are real excited to talk to Dave Donaldson next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life normally alongside ian simpkins but i'm flying solo today my name is brian Fromm. we're glad uh to have you join us today ian will be back with us tomorrow uh so you can tune in and listen to us both tomorrow uh, really excited to be joined on the phone right now by dave donaldson dave uh is uh helped compile a resource called city serve your guide to church-based compassion dave thanks so much for joining us today my pleasure, Brian. Absolutely. We were talking off air. Dave is in the Bay Area or in uh, California. It sounds much nicer than what we've got it here, but we won't hold that against you. Uh, we are very spoiled. They, and we're spoiled with our football team right now, too, the they, Niners. That is absolutely true. You guys are living well right now, for sure. Um, talk to us a little bit about CityServe. What is, the, what, was, what is the hope behind it? What is this resource uh, that I'm guessing is particularly for churches? Yes, uh, 40 different experts in church-based compassion. 
And we've got government leaders, obviously pastors, nonprofit leaders, and and experts that help both pastors and lay people on how to develop their strategy to address the brokenness in their communities and as a result to grow both spiritually and numerically. And so this concept of compassion, this idea of compassion, um, I was reading in your bio, it, it comes from a real place of uh, it deep. Uh, it's deeply held within you. Tell us a little bit of your story and how that's driven uh, what you're even doing now. When I was nine years of age, my parents were pastoring not, not too far from where I'm standing right now. And one evening as they were driving uh, to a board meeting, a drunk driver slid across the divide and hit their car mm. head on. Uh, our dad was killed instantly. Uh, our mother survived, but they literally had to pin her body back together again to survive. And, and Brian, I remember going to visit her at the hospital with my brothers, and we peered through the glass into her room, and she was so beaten up and broken, we didn't even recognize her. Oh, my goodness. And so there we were, three young boys and then a younger sister, and wondering what's going to happen next. Mm. You know, where are we going to get food, clothing, and and who would possibly take in four young children? Uh, but this community, this here in the Bay Area, uh, they responded uh, to our cries and our needs very tangibly and brought us hot meals almost every night for six mm. months. Wow. And then this family, the Davises, uh, that didn't have you know a big bank account, they didn't have a big home, they lived in a single-wide trailer, and they invited us into their home. And I recall that day when we walked up to the front door of this trailer, and I was scared and and I wondered, would this just be another stop along the way? Would yeah. they really want us and keep us? And we shuffled inside, and Bill Davis said this. He said, you are with family, and this is your home. Wow. And that, that four-letter word, uh, Brian, it, it was life-changing. Yeah. Because it meant the Davises were not only willing to share their space, but they were willing to share in our pain, our sorrow, and even our anger you know, towards God. And, and as you know, that's compassion. Yeah, It literally means to suffer with. <laughs> hmm. Thank you for sharing that story. I really appreciate that. Uh, as we think about the church, um, you know, the church in our culture is often from people who aren't a part of the church seen as judgmental. It's just about what are we against? And we live in this kind of culture with lots of people being angry and the church is seen as part of the problem. If churches were to embrace this idea of compassion and influence within their their communities, what difference do you think that would make in within our culture and how the culture views the church? Well, this is where I think we're at, for the most part. <laughs> most churches are attractional. Yeah, They're weekend productions, expecting, hoping people will come or not leave. And then on the other hand, uh, you have well-meaning pastors uh, who are, you know, outsourcing compassion to some great nonprofits, both both national and local. Mm. As a result, our people sitting in the pews, wonderful people, uh, have not developed their compassion muscle. Mm. And they're expecting people to come without really, you know, going out into their, their neighborhoods. Yeah. And I got to tell you something that just happened to me. Yeah. 
uh, my wife and I just moved into this house and along with the other neighbors, it's a new development. And, and Brian, I got to admit, I was standing there at our island and it was such a rough day. And I know as a pastor, you've had these days too, <laughs> where you just, you're discouraged mm. and you're just like, man, you just feel like you're outgunned. And, and I made this statement. I, and, I, and I started having a pity party, and I said, I just feel like a failure. I just feel like mm. a failure. And there's a knock on the door, and it's our new neighbors, Chinese neighbors, and they're there carrying a gift. And they said, we're so happy that you're here in the neighborhood. We look forward to getting to know you, to invite you over to dinner. And I closed that door, and I wept. Oh, wow. And I, I mean, I was convicted you yeah. know, that— you know, and I just said, God, you help me die to self so that your purposes can live in this neighborhood. Mm. It's not about me. It's about those people. And, and we should have been the first to go out yeah. to our Hindu neighbors, our Chinese neighbors. And uh, that just happened. And my neighbors are teaching me how to become a better neighbor. That's awesome. That's great. You, you talk in this in this resource about the idea of risk taking. How is a church that says, you know what, we want to be in the neighborhoods, we want to be uh, showing compassion? Uh, how does that require some risk taking out of the church? One of the first churches that I ministered at on behalf of Convoy of Hope when we launched that, uh, the pastor went up to the podium and I thought he was going to introduce me. But instead, he resigned from the church. Oh, goodness. And, and to make matters worse, my sermon topic or title was never quit, never give up. <laughs> and so we started this, this whole compilation with the first chapter that we call Four Prophet Leaders. And that's spelled P-R-O-P-H-E-T, leaders. Wow and how our pastors can take their rightful and responsible place, and I call it appendectorate le- leaders. On one hand, they're caring for their flocks, equipping the saints. Mm. But on the other hand, they're taking, really, their seat of an influence in that community. And so we walk through step-by-step, step-by-step on how to really convert a nonprofit leader that's circling the wagons, don't let anybody in or out, to a for-profit leader mm. that makes really makes a, a declaration that our church is going to be known for what we're doing outside the walls yeah. of our campus. That's that's really powerful. I'm, I'm convicted as a pastor. I'm sure there's other pastors and church leaders and people in churches listening to this who are convicted. And, and with the last minute or two that we have left, if there are people uh, convicted, you know, I want this for my church, but it sounds overwhelming. Maybe give them one or two kind of first steps to kind of start this journey. Yes, Jesus said, look upon the fields. And so I would encourage you to know your community before hmm. you fix it. And we've got great chapters that focus on that. And then it was a matter of sending forth the workers. So prioritize, you know, what issues uh, what brokenness you want to tackle. And that's a great thing about compassion is it's scalable. Mm. You know, you don't need to go, you know, and, and take on like maybe homelessness, you know, at first. Uh, for most churches, that would be like the 50-yard dash to the 5K. But mm. maybe you can start with foster care, hunger, you know, marriage and family, uh, grief counseling. And then as you do that, then assess, 
what assets do you currently have in your church? And then interview. Get to know the nonprofit organizations, talk with government leaders, Mm. and then build a strategy around that. Well, that's super helpful. You're listening to Dave Donaldson. Uh, You can pick up uh, his book, his resource, City Serve, Your Guide to Church-Based Compassion, trying to help churches uh, make that difference, uh, that compassionate difference in the community that we've been called to make. Dave, uh, I really appreciate this. As a pastor, this has convicted me and gotten my mind uh, going. So I really appreciate the time you spent with us. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Brian. Absolutely. Uh, You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out today. Uh, He will join us again tomorrow, so have no fear. Ian will be back. He will be here with us tomorrow, and uh, we'll get back into our regular rhythm of of the two of us uh, talking. Because you know what, John? After a while, I just get tired of hearing myself talk. Well, I mean, is that just a... Thank you for not agreeing with think? that, by the way. Thank you for not agreeing with that. <laughs> I'd be like, tell me about it. Oh, my gosh. I was glad you didn't get on your mic and just go, yeah, I agree. Like, I while agree you're not looking, I'm going to, like, subtract from the clock. <laughs> yes. Everyone's like, just put in more commercials. We're good with that. I'll buy a pillow. I'm good. I'm good. So... Two articles that are completely different, but man, did they jump out to me when I was looking today. Listen to this one, businessinsider.com. Just listen to this headline. UPS expects 1.9 million package returns in a single day, and it reveals a troubling reality for retailers about holiday shopping. UPS... <laughs> UPS said Monday that it's expecting a record-breaking surge in package returns this holiday season. Return activity expected to peak. What day do you think it's going to peak on, John? Take a guess. Did you look at this, Arette? Delivering? No, returns. What day is return activity for UPS peaks at what they're expecting to be 1.9 million package returns, which is up 26% from last year's peak? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Well, this one says, what, January 2nd was the January 2nd's the day that they're guessing. You cheated. I told you to guess. He cheated. <laughs> I totally don't have the article in front of me. No, no, no. January 2nd, they're expecting 1.9 million package returns. Uh, a National Retail Federation survey found that retailers are expected are expected about 11% of sales to be returned during the holiday season. A separate study by uh, a pre-retail estimated that returns cost retailers about $369 billion in lost sales last year, or about 10%. Uh, of total sales. And I don't know why I read that. There's not even much to talk about. I just find it fascinating how many of us out there are returning our gifts. <laughs> That's essentially what they're saying, that they're expecting 1.9 million package returns in a single day uh, in that uh, 11%, 10%, all of these percentages of people are returning their gifts. So I don't know what that says about us, but it says something. Here's the other one, Gospel Coalition. You ever seen the Shawshank Redemption, John? Oh, yeah. I think it's one of my favorite movies. It's 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 slow. People will say but you think Shawshank Redemption is I slow. I don't think it's slow. But uh. That's the one. That's the one criticism I've heard about it is that it's slow. But I think it's it, it's meant to convict you. Yeah, and it, it give you a reality check about the you know uh, incarcerated. Yeah. And, and yeah, what it's like to be totally isolated from the world. I think I think it's just your generation that thinks it's slow. You guys need everything fast. 
I am totally fine <laughs> with sitting back and just kind of mulling over details, but yeah, no, I agree with you. So at the Gospel Coalition, Tim Briggs wrote an article that says Shawshank still preaches 25 years later. When I saw this, I was like, yes, good old Anded Dufresne. Uh, it says this fall marks the 25th anniversary of the release of Shawshank Redemption. 25 years later, it's hard to believe this beloved movie was a box office flop in 1994. Did you know that? That originally when it came out, it was a flop. No idea. Today, it resides atop many best movie ever lists. Uh, there's a lot to love about Shawshank, it says. Uh, I could write, he writes endless pages about the music, acting, cinematography, direction, and so on. But while there are worthy topics, I'm most interested in the film's Christian symbolism. From start to finish, intended or unintended, it is saturated with Christian imagery and themes. With redemption in its very title, the film seems to invite a Christian interpretation, and though in general we should be cautious about stretching for theological parallels, it's also worth celebrating when a movie reminds us of the beauty of the Christian narrative. And he asks, and that's exactly the sort of beauty I see in Shawshank. So he talks about a couple different spots. He says, consider how the redemption drama of Andy Dufresne reflects certain aspects of Jesus' story. Andy enters the world of Shawshank prison as an outsider. Red, who's Morgan Freeman, becomes Andy's friend, and he observes he had a quiet way about him, a walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. He strolled like a man in a park without a care or worry. In fact, the whole story is told through Red's point of view and becomes his testimony about Andy. Uh, Andy's quickly adopted into Red's friend group, uh, and he teaches them that there's something much better than their bleak surroundings. Uh, He says, describing the moment where Andy gets Mozart played, he says, I tell you, their voices soared higher and farther than anybody in the gray place dares to dream. Uh, And then he just talks about how Shawshank Redemption just drips with hope. He says, I first saw Shawshank when I was 12 and I immediately liked it. I enjoyed it for its pure entertainment, uh, but also observed it at a deeper meaning. At 12, I was quite proud of myself that I knew this movie was not just about a prison break, but it was about hope. Even then, I knew hope is rather vague and rudderless without something firm to be grounded in. It wasn't until college that I discovered the sort of sturdy hope Scripture describes. First Peter 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the author writes, with each subsequent viewing of Shawshank, I'm reminded of this living hope, recalling both the prison of my sin and the prospect of freedom found in my Savior. He says, I'm not a crier, but I well up every time at the end of the movie. As the dramatic music gently crescendos, Red, uh, Morgan Freeman's character, says, I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it is in my dreams. I hope. And that's how the movie ends. He says there's a longing in Red's voice. He ends by saying, I hope. And it's a declaration. And so next time you see Shawshank Redemption, if you've never watched it before, I cannot encourage you enough to see that movie. It is fabulous. And one reason I think there's uh, that people love this movie is because of this idea of hope. We all long for hope in our lives. We all long for it. Everybody, Christian and non-Christian alike, alike are longing for hope. And the question is, where are we going to find hope? And the Bible tells us over and over and over again that hope is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the movie Shawshank Redemption and saying their hope was found in in getting out of prison and, and seeing the Pacific Ocean. And that's why we all love that. It's this issue of hope. And we as Christians have hope to give to the world, a world that so desperately wants it. So two questions for you. One, do you view your faith as hope, as hopeful? Is that where your hope is in good times and bad? Does your hope reside in Jesus Christ? And two, are you telling people about that hope? Are you sharing that hope with other people? Let me encourage you to do that. Shawshank Redemption, go see that movie, and uh, I think you'll be better off for it. Well, that's the first hour in the books. In the next hour, we're excited to be joined by K.J. Johnson from the C.S. Lewis Institute. He's going to join us here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is not with us today. Uh, He will be back tomorrow. He at least has promised me that. So uh, we are going to bank on that. We'll have Ian back tomorrow. But in the meantime, I've been able to have lots of different guests come through and been really enjoyable to talk to different people. Uh, And a friend of the show is back, our friend K.J. Johnson. K.J., thanks for coming back in. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. K.J. is the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute right here in Chicago. So why don't we start there? We talked about this last time you were on the the show, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about what the C.S. Lewis Institute is? What is it that you guys do? Sure thing. Um, We were founded about 42 years ago by a friend of C.S. Lewis, and his vision was not to make more fans of Lewis, but to make more people like Lewis. Mm. So our our tagline, if you will, is uh, discipleship of heart and mind. So we just seek to um, assist the church. That's an important caveat in there is we're not trying to be a parallel institution, but more of a buttressing institution to the church to help make disciples fulfill the Great Commission. Mm. So we do that uh, through a variety of programs and things like that. We'll do seminars and conferences. We run a uh, discipleship program to build people up and send them back into the church to assist guys like you who are pastors and can use a little help. Yeah, usually is, you have your hands full. Is it, uh, who are the people who you guys end up uh, interacting with the most? Is it pastors? Is it just people who are interested in C.S. Lewis? Who are the people that you see the most often? It is all the above. Mm. We've had pastors in the program, um, but most of the time they're lay people who want to go deeper and... Um, they don't want to go do schooling. They're not going to go do a master's in theology or get an MDiv, and they and they shouldn't because there's probably a lot in those kinds of programs they don't need. And so they spend a year. In, in one sense, I call it Christianity 101, mm-hmm. but what you really do is you get to spend time on themes that you don't get to do in a typical small group. Where yeah. It's almost like a rock skipping across the water. Yeah. So, and where could people find out more? Where, where can they go for C.S. Lewis Institute? Uh, our website, cslewisinstitute.org, one long mouthful of there word. You go. <laughs> um, that's the best way to find out about it. We we run the program. It goes June to June, but we take it, – it's a free program, I should say. Oh, so it's free. It's wow. tuition-free. Uh, you buy your own books and things like mm-hmm, that. But we mm-hmm. take applications for it because we only want serious people. Okay. So the beauty is um, you're in a group of people who are primed and ready to grow, mm. and they're all hungry. We had Kevin Van Hooser teaching last weekend, and he said, "Wow, uh, you know, I love – these kinds, because the two kinds of people I love to teach are pastors 
and people who are serious. It's like, you guys are up at 8 a.m. on Saturday morning with us, and you must be serious about growing. Yeah. And, and they are. Wow, free. That's that's really impressive. Go to cslewisinstitute.org, you said? Dot org? Dot org. All right. Well, I, I emailed you or we emailed you and just kind of said, hey, what's some stuff that you'd be interested to talk about? And you wrote one thing that is just, I think, fascinating. So let's talk about it. You said, I have a particular issue as both a ministry leader and a military officer that we're going to get into later about your military work about how we conflate leadership with discipleship. And there is a, an entire show on that right there. But talk about how you think we do that and why that's such a big problem, particularly in the church. Yeah, you're right. We could talk about this. When I was on the show last time, uh, you, I think you were the one who asked me, and maybe it was Ian, but uh, what are some of the the areas we, t- we tend to get wrong when it comes yeah. to discipleship? Some you know, sort of an FAQ page on discipleship. And I, I wanted to get into that, but it, it was so big and we didn't have enough time. Yeah. Um, leadership is an important component of discipleship. So I don't want to diminish one or the other. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like at times when you're debating discipleship and evangelism. They're both important. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but we conflate them because we confuse them. So uh, I, I, there's a guy named Greg Ogden who wrote a great book, Transforming Discipleship. Mm-hmm. In it, he says, the church does not have a leadership problem we have a discipleship problem. Hmm. And so what we often do is we, we see problems, they're legitimate problems, and uh, we have a solution, and it's leadership. And so oftentimes uh, I see this now as I get to know people in business more. They often have a solution, and they're looking for a problem. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit yeah. of that. Um, but the problem is before you can be a leader, you need to learn to follow. Hmm. And we're called to be disciples first and foremost. And so... The scenario that I feel like I've seen the most, and I think we've seen this in Chicago now as we look yeah. at leadership in churches, is you see someone who may be showing a legitimate spark or hunger to grow, and you get excited as that. I can see a pastor getting excited, like, look, this guy, he's actually serious. I don't have mm. to convince him he needs this, and you put him in leadership, probably before he's had a chance to be to to uh, be taught and mentored and grow mm. into that leadership. Yeah. Um, and that's what we do in the military. I mean, I was an officer for 20 years, retired as lieutenant colonel. Um, but before they ever let me give my first order, I had to learn how to follow orders. They 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 had us running around doing um, uh, positions that were at the lowest levels. Yeah. So you learned how to follow orders, and you learned the imp- the importance of all of those sorts of things. Mm. See, we I think we need to help people learn to grow and be followers of Christ as disciples before we just thrust them into leadership. Yeah. Tell me about the. You might have a church in mind or just kind of the concept of a church. What's a church look like that's doing that well, in your opinion? Um, well, so I spent the last couple of years living in Atlanta, and I think a perimeter church down there um, with Randy Pope is doing it really, really well. Mm. Uh, here is a guy, and this is a pretty big church. So, you know, we can talk about the dynamics of big and little versus yeah. little, and it's they all have their challenges. Mm-hmm. But this is a big church. But what he does is he takes 12 guys every two years and mentors them mm. and spends time and over, I mean, he's been there 30 years, something like that. He's getting ready to retire. He's done that over and over and over and invested in the men in his church is done for women as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he's invested in the men in his church, in the leadership below him. And I feel like there's a church that's doing it well because you have to, it's done a few at a time. You can't yeah. mass produce disciples or leaders mm-hmm. and it takes time to mentor and coach them. I think that's the hard part, right? As a pastor, uh, everyone wants your church to be big, right? How big is your church? How big is your church? And it's exactly that. You can't, uh, you can't fast forward discipleship. It's not like a hey, four weeks and away you go. You can do classes. You can do that kind of stuff. Uh, but that's really difficult. Uh, how about the, um, and again, we've seen this in some very public churches around here, 
this kind of uh, pastor as CEO uh, and that kind of model, where uh, how is that dangerous in your opinion? I think that's dangerous because we're taking the wrong set of criteria and making if we're making that the central mm-hmm. set of qualifications to be a pastor, we're missing the point. I think pastors are, are shepherds first and foremost. And yeah. I think we can get myopic on anything. You know, you could take any area of ministry and, you know, if you love apologetics, that's, you could just be preaching apologetics all yep. the time and forget the, the rest of it. So I think uh, the pastor as CEO uh, may work for an organization that's mm-hmm. designed to make a profit and watch bottom lines and streamline and efficiency mm-hmm. and all that. But discipleship is not about efficiency. No, <laughs> you don't synchronize. You can't synchronize spiritual growth and yeah. things like that. Yeah. So I think there's a danger of um, missing the target, if you will, when you do, when you make that the central qualification, yeah. those are great things to have. Sure. Sure. I'm curious what C.S. Lewis did in uh, it, when it came to discipleship. Maybe he didn't. Is there a book out there or any his thoughts where he said this is the best way to disciple or this is the best way to set it up? How is that set up with C.S. Lewis? Yeah, he he didn't write on that directly. Mm-hmm. But if you read books about him, uh, there's a guy named Lyle Dorsett. Oh, who, Wheaton. Yeah, yep. yeah. Well, he's down at the Beeson now. Oh, um, actually, Wheaton, that's right. Yeah, and he he but he wrote a great biography on Lewis called mm. Seeking the Secret Place. And the subtitle is The Spiritual Formation of Lewis. And wow. um, he had met Warney and gotten to know Warney over the years. He spent a lot of time on Lewis. And he just traced how Lewis grew in his faith. Lewis had a spiritual advisor that he would visit regularly. Wow. He, think about the Inklings. Yeah. This is peer-to-peer discipleship. Yep. They got together regularly. They may not have been following you know, a six-week Bible study, mm-hmm. but they were getting together sharpening one another. Yeah. Can you imagine being the person who was C.S. Lewis's uh, spiritual advisor? <laughs> but it does speak to his humility. To say I want to be discipled really requires a posture of humility. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure that we have that, especially in our leaders within a lot of churches, sadly. Yeah, I think Lewis was all about pointing people to Jesus, mm-hmm. helping them to become like Jesus, and enjoy the union we have with them through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're listening to K, uh, K.J. Johnson, the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute here in Chicago. Uh, K.J. has a, a fascinating uh, bio, and a lot of it has to do with your military service. And so I want to dive into that next sure. here uh, here on our next segment here. Before we, uh, before we go to commercial, I want to tell you again about the Lyft Conference. The Lyft Conference is being put on by AM 1160. Lyft 2019 Leadership in Crisis, uh, Friday, November the 15th at High Point Church in Naperville. This is for pastors, church leaders, elders, anybody who's in leadership at church, at a church. Uh, this is a free event, uh, free lunch. Everything's free. Uh, Nine o'clock till three. Uh, you can go to attendlift.com or go to uh, 1160hope.com. Jim Daly from Focus on the Family, Nancy Beach will both be there as there will also be many breakout sessions. So we'd encourage you to be there. Uh, coming up next, KJ is going to stay with us and we're going to talk to him a little bit more about his military service. That is up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Back to the Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out uh, for uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But he'll be back with us tomorrow on Thursday. Uh, So uh, excited to have him back. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk, online at 1160hope.com, and find our podcast wherever it is uh, you find your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. We really appreciate those of you. 
uh, who do that. Well, we're uh, continue to be joined and we're thankful to be joined by K.J. Johnson, the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute here in Chicago. If you missed the first segment with K.J., we talked about discipleship and how it's different than leadership and also what's going on at the C.S. Lewis Institute. Uh, but a lot of your history is military uh, and your military service. Why don't, instead of me just reading it, why don't you tell us a little bit, because it's a fascinating military career you've had. Yeah. So um, at, right out of college, I went down to school in Champaign. Mm-hmm. I had accepted a commission in the Marine Corps, and um, they had offered me an air contract. That was a, at that time, uh, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> I wanted to fly. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. So I entered. Uh, I took my commission in 1992 and spent the next 20 years uh, as an officer in the Marine Corps, running around the globe, flying uh-huh. helicopters and doing operations. And um, now it's easy to say you're a pilot, but in the Marine Corps, uh, the mantra or the ethos of the Marine Corps is you are a rifleman first. So everybody's a Marine mm. first and then everything else second. And I-, I love the parallels we can draw from this to the Christian life in so many ways. We're all, I mean, okay, you may be a pastor or this guy over here may be a deacon or, or whatever, but we are first and foremost disciples. So we have that this, this, uh, we have our loves ordered rightly to borrow yeah. some Augustinian imagery. <laughs> um, and so you're a Marine first. And so I did a lot. I was a weapons and tactics instructor. I did a lot of operations and strategy. And um, by the time, the last five or six years, you get promoted up to a rank where you're not so much doing the, the fun stuff. You get promoted to higher yeah. stuff. So uh, my last tour was in Afghanistan where I was working in the Helmand province overseeing the command and control of all aircraft out there. Fascinating. With the uh, third Marine aircraft wing. Fascinating. I have so many questions about this because uh, I'm curious, uh, someone who's, like you said, seen a lot of things that most of us haven't seen, traveled the globe, been in the Marines. <laughs> uh, what does that do or what did that that journey do to your faith? Uh, did it give you, did it, did it make... Uh, your faith a lot stronger? Was it hard to have faith while traveling the globe and seeing kind of some of these things in the world? What did it do uh, to your faith as you were Marine all those years? <laughs> it gave me a lot of opportunities to learn. <laughs> yeah. um, I would say, so my own faith journeys, I, I, I grew up that quote unquote good Christian kid mm-hmm, that went mm-hmm. to college and did the typical college thing. That drifted into the first three or four years of my Marine Corps career. Oh, fascinating. Um, and uh, so my journey paralleled that. So I got married about three, three and a half years into the Marine Corps, and then we had our first child. And so I always like to say getting married and uh, having kids will sober you up literally and figuratively. And so my Marine career kind of paralleled my growth into becoming a serious believer. Um, But looking back, I wish I had taken it seriously a lot sooner because I could have really had a a greater impact for Mm. the kingdom. Um, But by the time I figured that out, I had five or six years left, and I learned that I could be faithful without shoving things in people's faces. Yeah. And there's a way to be a faithful presence without being passive. Um, but more than anything, it was it was kind of the, back to our previous discussion, the things of leadership mm-hmm. and the skills I was developing as an officer. I wondered what I was going to do when I got out because I yeah. can't do any of this thing and I, uh, any of these things out there. And, and I put every one of those skills to work. It's just instead of military operations and helicopters, I'm doing it in... I got really good at developing training curriculum and mentoring yeah. people. And Marine Corps is all about mentoring the next generation. That's exactly what I'm doing now. Yeah. So um, I, I just saw a lot of direct application for uh, the Christian life. Yeah. You know, going in the Marine Corps, we have this saying, uh, we don't promise you a rose garden. <laughs> That's a Christian mm-hmm. life. We talk about that. As we're, we're not promising you that everything's going to be fine and dandy. Yeah. You're going to live a life of persecution and suffering. Yeah. So just so, so many great parallels that I've been able to tap into. Ian and I talked about a fascinating article the other day that talked about, I'm going to get it kind of wrong, but it said 
uh, that people that the number one job that people find satisfaction in uh, was actually the military. And the article goes on to say, because there's a there's a very set purpose and you're doing stuff when you get out of the military. Is it hard to replicate that or uh, what's that struggle like as you get, as you transition out of the military? It it can be. Yeah. Um, it also depends on whether you're a career person or you're only in for two or three, four years. Mm-hmm. And some people never really transition into the military. And by the time they're getting out, they're having a hard time. And they probably were having a hard time before they ever got in. Gotcha. Um, it's sort of that uh, the stereotypical, you know, the judge looking down at the kid. Like, yeah, two choices, prison or military. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but for me, I, one, of, one of the stereotypes in the military is we're very rigid. Yeah. And we're inflexible. Uh-huh. And the thing for me that's helped me getting out is that's actually not the case. We're actually the most flexible organization in the world. Fascinating. We have our doctrine. Literally, we have doctrine. We have our tactics. We have things, and it would seem like we're lockstep into those, but we have a saying, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Mm. So we get dropped into chaos all the time. Yeah. I remember uh, the tsunami in 2004 in Indonesia. Yeah. I went in with my buddy. He happened to be a believer, too, and we were two helicopters landing to drop some food, and like... A hundred people rushed his helicopter and we had no weapons because this was a peaceful mission. Yes. But there were known terrorists in the area and I didn't know what to do at the moment. I thought, what am I going to do if they, if they just take this helicopter over? Uh, and so you learn to deal with those sorts of things. Wow. So improvisation, you know, we like to say that we improvise, we adapt and we overcome. Yeah. That's life. That's the Christian life. It's absolutely and true. And been able to draw that as this is discipleship. Discipleship is a life of improvisation. You've got your doctrine and you've got your tactics, but you have to learn how to incarnate that and live that in each situation. And it's going to be different for you or me, even if the situation is the same. Yeah. The noted philosopher Mike Tyson, right? He famously said, uh, what was his famous line? Everyone's got a plan to they get punched in the exactly. face. Exactly. <laughs> like, That's exactly right. When that comes from Mike Tyson. You're like, oh, I get that. Uh, it says here you still serve as an advisor for a Marine Corps discipleship ministry. That's fascinating because you're passionate about discipleship. You're passionate about the Marine Corps. Tell me about what you're doing there. Yeah, I got involved with them right about the time I found the C.S. Lewis Institute. And I had come to a point in my life where I realized that while uh, I grew up um, – and I'd been a that good Christian kid. I'd been around a lot of good Christian men, but none of them had poured directly into me. And so by the time I realized I needed that, God brought me into this company of Marines that were serious about their discipleship. Wow. So we have the name Tun Tavern Fellowship. And now Tun Tavern is the, the legendary place, um, birthplace of the Marine Corps back in 1775. Wow. It was a bar in Philadelphia. Really? So go figure. The Marines were started in a bar. <laughs> no surprise. Yeah. Um, so it was a it was a historical place, but... We've adapted that name because it means something to Marines. And even Marines who aren't mm. Christians, when they hear that, they go, what are you guys doing? And, and so we get together and we talk about issues that are important to Marines, you know, ethics and leadership and, you know, other sorts of uh, conundrums. We'll study um, cases of, you know, my lie back in Vietnam where you mm. had these sort of war crimes. And what would you do if you were there and you were part of that unit? And so we'll talk about real things that matter. So that's where the name Tun Tavern comes from. It's not okay. a bunch of guys getting drinking beer. <laughs> they might, but yeah. um, but that's not the central piece. It's just that it, it, it means something to Marines. Yeah. Do you sense a spiritual hunger in the military? Yes. Why so? What, why is that? Um, the issues of day-to-day life are very real and stark. Yeah. You will deploy and you may not come home. Mm. So uh, the, the, the issue, these kinds of issues that sometimes we give lip service to in the rest of the world are very real for the military. Yeah. And so they have to rec- they have to make their peace before God a lot sooner than the rest of us. Wow, that's pa- that's powerful. Yeah. That's powerful. Um 
No, no atheists in foxholes, right? <laughs> that is true. Uh, wondering, uh, do you ever fly anymore? Like, you've been trained to fly. You flew helicopters. That was such a big part of your life. Like, do you miss it? And is there a way to scratch that itch still for you? I'm only starting to get the itch again. Are you? I was a little burned out. Uh, I miss the people in the community a lot. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, but I didn't miss that. And it's a lot of work to stay up on your qualifications. But now that I'm back in Chicago, I've started to look at the sky a little bit more longingly. <laughs> Airplane or helicopter? Uh, I could do either. Uh, you go through naval flight school. Everybody starts in airplanes. Okay. And then from there, you branch out into whatever specialty. Okay. Okay. So. Well, coming up next, I want to talk to you about some really easy subjects like politics and the church <laughs> and how we, I don't know if you know this, uh, we are, as of two days ago, I believe it is, we are a year from the election as of, I believe, two days ago. And uh, the look on your face mirrors the look on my face going, oh. That's not going to be a fun year. (laughs) And so we're going to talk about that next. Interested, uh, especially what would Lewis have said, too, as well. So some of this background of of politics, uh, public witness and the church. How do we live this well in the coming year? Uh, K.J. Johnson, uh, the program, the director for the C.S. Lewis Institute here in Chicago, is going to stay with us for one more segment. I'm Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out. Uh, He will be back with us tomorrow. You can find us on Facebook, Common Good Radio Show. Find our podcast wherever it is you find your podcast. And we are grateful to be joined for a third segment by K.J. Johnson. K.J. is the director for the C.S. Lewis Institute right here in Chicago. So thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Third segment's of the charm. Third segment. Let's go have some fun with it. <laughs> it's right when you start to get comfortable. You're like, all right, let's do this. So um, wondering, let's let's do it this route. We teased this before about we're a year out from the election. Uh, we live in a, I don't know, it feels like an increasingly polarized nation. Uh, politicized, polarized, all sorts of things. So before you and I give our opinions on what is the church's role here, I'm curious, how did C.S. Lewis, as as we said, you're the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute, how did C.S. Lewis deal with politics? What was his his perspective? I've got a great quote from here by him that I'll share with you. It's a little longer, but I think it's worth it. He wrote in in God in the Dock, he says, we learn of a growing desire for a he put this in quotes, a Christian party mm-hmm. or a Christian front or a Christian platform in politics. Whatever it calls itself, it will resent, represent not Christendom, but a part of Christendom. Mm. The principle which unites it to its political allies will not be theological. There will be a real and most disastrous novelty. Mm. It will not simply be a part of Christendom, but be claiming to be the whole of Christendom. By the mere act of calling itself the Christian party, it implicitly accuses all Christians who do not join it of apostasy and betrayal. Mm. It will be exposed in an, aver- in, in an aggravated degree to the temptation of claiming for our favorite opinions that kind of degree and certainty and authority, which really only belongs to our faith. And I think that temptation, whether you're on the left side or the right yep. side, it is such a temptation for all of us because we see some real good in that party that we think aligns with our faith. And then we t- want to make that the whole that that part the whole. Yeah, yeah, that's a great quote. And that, see, when you read a quote like that, and it so aptly plays to what we're living in now, you're like, well, that's why C.S. Lewis kind of 
transcends time. Oh, yeah. Why he keeps people keep reading him and keep going back to him because he's right, right there. We put stuff into our political beliefs and we call that gospel. And yeah. We're like, well, that's it. What do you see as you look at the landscape of our country? Um, and you know, like we said, we're we're on this march now to the election. Um, what do you see as? Let's take the let's take the positive side first. What do you see as the opportunity for the church? What is the opportunity for the Christian in this next year uh, as it's going to be pretty tense around our country, I'm sure? Yeah. Um, we'll go well, negative then. <laughs> but let's start positive with the opportunity. The opportunity is that it. this is a chance on the public, national, global mm-hmm. stage to represent what our values are and to in a, to follow Lewis here, to disassociate, disassociate ourselves with any particular party and show mm-hmm. that this is what we stand for rather than to be co-opted by any particular view. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean you don't land on a choice. We live in a fallen world, so we're going to have to pick something. We have an yep. opportunity really to put forth gospel values out there mm. and explain why we, we believe what we believe and live that out. Yeah. I've read a quote the other day. I'm going to read it again because, you know, people listen or don't listen. Uh, there's a pastor we quote often named Scott Sauls, and he had a quote that I'm going to use so much in the next year in a book called Jesus Outside the Lines. If you've never read it, it's one of the best books I've ever read uh, that deals with how are Christians to deal in the in this political, politicized world. He says this, Sauls writes, we should feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. If this is not the case, then we need to take a serious look at who is actually discipling us. And I just think that's so powerful because, I don't know, the, the, the world I live in, oftentimes people are more linked to the people who vote like them than who believe what they believe. And uh, people see that. Like, that sends a message, I think. I, I agree. Um, uh, so let me let me match you book for book. I don't Go have a it. great quote, but uh, Wheaton Professor Vincent Baycoat, uh-huh. he's great. He wrote, and we, when we... Our last major public event we did was during last last election cycle, uh-huh. and it was on his book called The Political Disciple. And in it, he talks about the importance of public witness. Mm, and we yes. have to we got to remember and we're we, we're prone to individualism as much as the, the, the non church world. And our collective witness in this process is so important, much less our, our individual witness, mm. so how we respond as a church regarding the how we get behind certain candidates yeah. doesn't mean we don't get behind them, but we have to be careful not to do a full throated endorsement of everything yep. about particular candidates. That's good. So I, we talked about the opportunity, like to start positive, but what's the danger? What is the danger for evangelicalism for the church uh, that could really hurt our witness in this next year? Well, it's, it's what you're saying is um, uh, with the, with the Saul's quote is we, will start to conflate these things, and mm-hmm. Lewis said it, and, and then it starts to cause not only divisions in the country, but within the church. I have seen more impassioned and divisive conversations, and I've seen more friendships end mm. because of this last cycle of elections. Yeah. And the ability to agree to disagree, which we all claim to, to want, has been a lot harder. Yeah. How do you walk people through that, uh, disciple people into how to best handle politics while keeping what is most important, most important, what are some words of advice you'd give to people, particularly those people out there who are like, no, I like I'm going to be full throated. This is this is the most important thing I care about right now. What's some word of advice you give to people like that? Um, 
if you find yourself dealing with something like that, I think it's always helpful to take a couple steps back from the mm-hmm. actual political issues because you sometimes have to major in the majors before you get in, mm-hmm. into the minors. And uh, I'll go back to the, the prof I just mentioned a minute ago, Kevin Van Hooser. One of the questions he says that keeps driving him is, what does it mean to be biblical? And if you take a step back in that direction, something that general and that, you know, a big tent, mm-hmm. we can sometimes unmask some of the issues underlying and underpinning what we're wrestling about and mm-hmm. understand that, yeah, this issue is important and this issue is important, but don't neglect these issues. Or, yeah, and at the same time, realizing you don't want to ask someone to violate their conscience. Yeah. Um, and I think we can have a, a helpful discussion about it without casting aspersion and, you know, accusing someone of apostasy and heresy. Yeah. yeah we, I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday about how we've gotten so polarized. You know, there, there is no middle one. I think most of us are in the middle somewhere. Like we might be a little, you know, right of center, left of center, but we're, we're kind of trying to think this through. Uh, and but we can begin to think that everything is so polarized because of social media and and everything around us uh, that it can just become really dangerous. Uh, let me let me bring us full circle here. It might be a strange way to think about it. Uh, how is discipleship an important ingredient to how we handle politics and it, how we handle the world here? That's that's a great question. It can mm-hmm. keep us grounded. Yeah. Um, so not enough time to de- dive into this one. But the guy who mentored me when I got to the C.S. Lewis Institute. Um, was the president of the Institute and pretty much the architect behind most of what we do. He just wrote a book, okay. Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love. Everybody pick it up and read it <laughs> because in the 1960s, he was the most feared man in Mississippi. Wow. He was a KKK hitman. He traces in this book how he fell into, in this case, it was far right ideology, but he also talks about the dangers of far left ideology. Sure. So I'm not trying to pick on one or the other, but in his <laughs> case, he fell prey to far right ideology fell into racism, anti-Semitism, found himself in prison, breaking out of prison. And it was not until he was confronted with the truth of the gospel that he found. And so this discipleship unmasked all of these radicalizations. And so the danger, how many of us are going to go that far? Mm -hmm. Not many. But we can start to buy into some of these political platforms that start to eke away from what our Christian values should be. And so rooted in scripture can help be uh, an antiseptic to that. Wow. How did you get hooked up with this guy? We're, I'm was, sure we're much further down the journey, but how did that come? I found the Institute. Okay. I was hungry for discipleship. He happened to be the guy in charge and he mentored really? me that year. And then for the last 12 years, he's been my spiritual father. So, so he his went, name's Tom Terrence. Tom Terrence went from the head of the KKK or a KKK hitman to the C.S. Lewis Institute. If you don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he wrote a book with John Perkins years later. He became friends with John Perkins oh my gosh. and a number of other uh, prominent civil rights leaders. So it, yeah, it's that's legit. powerful. That's a powerful way to end. Well, KJ, super thankful that you've joined us today. Again, KJ Johnson is the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute. You can find out more at uh, cslewisinstitute.org. And uh, there you guys have resources. If, if what he said earlier about their actual discipleship program kind of piqued your interest, go to them there. Uh, your, your email is kj at cslewisinstitute.org. So we would love to have you. Uh, we'd love to have you, uh, if you're interested in C.S. Lewis or interested in discipleship, to connect with them. KJ, thanks so much for doing this. We'll do it again sometime. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. Yep, absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. That music can only mean one thing. It is interweb insanity. That craziness at the end of every show. Uh, Straight out of the mind of our producer, PJ. 
Uh, he's he's picked stories that we will read. I will read sight unseen. Uh, they might make us uncomfortable. We might laugh, but just know we're doing it together. So either you're welcome or I'm sorry. We're going to be. We are going to determine that. Let's start. Ooh, the first one says off the coast of San Diego. Navy pilot who chased USS Nimitz UFO says there are tapes of encounter missing. One of the first U.S. Navy pilots to have encountered the famed Tic uh, Tac UFO off the coast of San Diego said there are tapes missing. Commander David Fravar was flying one of the two FA-18EFs, Super Hornets, that had taken off from the USS Nimitz during a combat exercise in 2004. They were directed to change course and investigate an unidentified object spotted on another's another carrier's, the USS Princeton's radar. To their amazement, the two fighter jets saw a tic-tac-shaped flying object at incredible speeds above a mysterious turbulent area of water below. When they returned to the USS Nimitz, a second team was sent out to investigate and again saw the object. This time it was all caught on camera, but some of those tapes are missing. You can't suppress the truth! People have a right to know. Roswell. Roswell! <laughs> uh, that's crazy. That's craziness. Uh, China. Man has 12-centimeter flesh-eating tapeworm removed, which had eaten his brain for 15 years. Okay. You know, normal sure. procedure. Yeah. Wang Lei first started to feel numbness down his left side in 2007 and had continued to suffer with, uh, with failed health ever since. He has since, uh, I'm having trouble reading, he has seen multiple specialists and was once treated for a malignant brain tumor as doctors tried to figure the cause of his issues. In 2018, doctors discovered that a tapeworm was living in his brain and they advised the patient to undergo non-surgical treatment as the parasite was considered to be in a risky area to operate on. Unfortunately, the tapeworm continued to live in Mr. Wang's head and he recently underwent an operation at the brain hospital to remove it. Following the two-hour procedure, medics removed a Sparganum mansoni parasite commonly found in the intestines of cats and dogs, but rarely in people. Must be a million of them! <laughs> nope, just one. I don't know what that is. You don't know what it's from? Jurassic Park? Close. It's with Kevin Bacon. Uh, I don't know. Worms in the ground? Nope. Tremors. Tremors. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hollywood. James Dean, consummate professional, will star in a new film 65 years after his death. In a move that either signals the breathtaking possibilities of technology or the onset of a certain dystopia, cultural, cultural icon James Dean is posthumously returning to film. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the Rebel Without a Cause actor, who tragically died in 1955 at the age of 24, will appear in a secondary lead role in the film adaptation of Gareth Crocker's Vietnam-era novel Finding Jack. Director Anton Ernst explained that after an extensive search and an analysis of the character Rogan, Dean appeared to be the best fit. Thankfully, Dean's family supports the idea. We feel honored that this family supports us and will take every precaution to ensure that his legacy as one of the most epic film stars to date is firmly intact. Dean's likeness will be rendered for the live action film via full body CGI with the help of pictures and actual footage. That's crazy. Aren't you dead? <laughs> now, here's the thing. Can you imagine <laughs> audition, if you're auditioning for this film, if you're auditioning for it, yes. and you find out that your role was... You were you were chosen. Sorry, you were second to the guy who died in 1955. 65 years. <laughs> you, guys, you have such clout that even ha over half a century, you still can. Man, get that's something. And of course, the family feels good about it. That's gonna be a nice little check. England. K 
Kimberly cash machine blown up, leaving money elf everywhere. A cash machine has been blown up, leaving money strewn across a car park. The machine outside the premier store in Kimberly, Nottinghamshire, was attacked at 3.30 with several people reporting a loud explosion. One person saw a man ripping out the internal workings of the machine before stuffing cash into his hoodie and driving away. (laughs) The witness, who was woken by the blast, said there was cash everywhere. Myself and my partner were woken up at 3.30 by a loud explosion. We got out of bed and saw a male in his late 20s dragging wreckage from the cash point to get to the cash. Nottinghamshire police remained at the scene, gathering evidence and beginning the cleanup. Detectives have asked anyone with information to get in touch. I'm by winning. I win here and I win there. Now what? Nice. <laughs> by winning. Last one, Nebraska. Nebraska man takes fake $1 million bill to bank, asks to open a new account. Tellers at Pinnacle Bank in Lincoln, Nebraska, had an unexpectedly eventful Monday thanks to a man who insisted on opening a new bank account with an initial deposit of $1 million. Million, yes. Waltzing into a bank out of the blue with what much with that much cold hard cash would be odd enough on its own. But this tale has a special twist. The man's $1 million was in a single bill. The Lincoln Journal Star reports that the unidentified man presented a $1 million bill to the bank teller and demanded a new account to hold his very real and totally not fake money. Tellers explained to him that the bill was counterfeit, but as you might imagine, he didn't believe them. And the man insisted that the bill was in fact real and that he intended to open a new account. Multiple tellers attempted him to inform the man that there's no such thing as a $1 million bill, but he didn't want to hear it and he left the bank with the bill and no new account. What? So that million-dollar check you gave me yesterday is no good? I quit my job, man! <laughs> a $1 million bill. I got a bridge to sell you. There was another clause that I, I took out. The, the highest single note that the Treasury has put out is a $10,000 bill yep. to the public. I, I want to find it, obviously. <laughs> good but. luck with that. But the $1 million bill, unfortunately for that man, was not true. Well, join us no. tomorrow. Ian Simpkins will be back 4 to 6 here on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life.